Good morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. It's your science on a Sunday. Um, and today we're doing something a little bit experimental on Fuzzy Logic. We've got a show all about the scientific process and how science happens. Uh, so it's going to be less about the fun facts and things that pop out at the end of a big scientific process and more about scientists as people, what they do with their time, uh, how they do it, and why it's important to us. Uh, my name's Eleanor, and I'm joined in the studio this morning by uh, Sian. Hello. And by Mitchell. Hi, how are we going? And these two are here with me because they are both experts at trying and failing at things. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, we're, we're going to be talking about science as a verb today, so the act of doing science. And the first question I'm going to pose to both of you, and I'm sorry I'm springing this on you, is what is science? Really? Okay. Well, science is a verb. Science is a method that we use to uh, test ideas and increase our knowledge and change the way we think about the world, I think. Yeah, I think that's completely valid. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go with you there, Mitchell. I think the testing part's really important. It's not really science if you can't test it to see if it works to see if your hypothesis is true. Yeah. We've used the word hypothesis a couple of times now, which leads us really nicely into this idea of the scientific method. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of particular experiments, we've actually we're going to break down what the scientific process actually consists of. So what kind of what kind of steps are involved in constructing a scientific approach to a problem? The first thing that you have to do is identify a question that needs to be answered. Yes, a hypothesis. Well, as my as my friend Buddy likes to say, a hypothesis is an idea that you can test. Okay, yeah, no, that's that's quite a nice that's quite a nice summary of it. So, yes, from Dinosaur Train. Is it dinosaurs doing science? Well, yeah, like the main character in it, Buddy, is always coming up with hypotheses and testing them. Okay, and, it's and that's that's pitched at kids. Yeah, that's pitched at like kindergarten aged kids. Well, this is something that's quite cool because. Because kindergarten age kids actually do carry out experiments very, very frequently. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is watch... I mean, even younger, all you have to do is watch a one-year-old sort of attempt to walk. And they're constantly experimenting with, with gravity. They're pushing the limits of what they know about how standing up works. Yeah. And it's, it's a big trial and error process. They're frequently testing the hypothesis, can I eat this? <laughs> That's a really big one. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we've probably been doing, you know, for all of time as as humans. Is this is this something I can eat or is it something that will kill me? Yeah. And sometimes you can test the same thing at different times. And now and so like, hey, I left this porridge sitting out in the sun. Can I eat this? Oh no, it's gone moldy. But then you try it again later and it's turned into bread. Because <laughs> you've cooked it or something, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure if that's quite how porridge works, but let's go with that. Yeah, well, that's got to be what the first bread is, right? It's a cooked, mouldy wheat porridge. Uh, I mean, we could test this. Yeah. Which brings us back to the scientific method, which yes. I'm going to try and do. <laughs> Good returning to the topic. We've, we've been so. on the dinosaur train. We've talked about mouldy porridge bread, but what we actually want to talk about is the scientific process. Uh, and so, as Mitchell correctly identified. Uh, part of the process is to come up with an idea that is testable. So one of the really good examples was the discovery of what DNA actually looks like. So there's um, a really good series of experiments and scientific process that comes about from Francis and Crick and people... Francis and Rosalind Cr Francis Franklin. Crick and Watson. 
and Rosalind Franklin uh, and their combined efforts to determine what DNA looked like. So what we start with is a question, which is what does DNA look like? The hypothesis they came up with was that it, they actually hypothesized that it would be helical. So that was sort of the most logical shape that they could predict that DNA would adopt based on the chemistry of the things that make it up. And the fact that you've got to pack it into a cell really efficiently. Yeah, yeah. So there's all sorts of informed... This is one of the key things. These are all informed ideas about what DNA might look like. They're not just plucking this out of the air. This is all based on previous knowledge that had been acquired. And they got this hypothesis that DNA is helical. And they go, all right what would verify that this is the case? How would we go about testing it? And the test is to start using X-ray crystallography, which is my favorite technique, Um, (laughs) because I have friends and do cool things. Um, (laughs) X-ray crystallography is really cool uh, and was absolutely fundamental in this, in answering the scientific question. So they had this hypothesis. The next step after having a hypothesis is prediction. So that is you... Now, imagine what the outcome of something will be based on your hypothesis being correct. So they imagined the outcome of this crystallography experiment would be they'd see a nice cross shape when they shot x-rays at DNA crystals. And if they saw the nice cross shape, that would that would verify their hypothesis. So they kind of abandoned that for a little while and Rosalind Franklin uh, swooped in and started crystallizing some DNA, uh, shot some x-rays through it, It was a very complicated process, but for the sake of brevity, one of the images she got out the other side was a cross, and that therefore verified, um, matched the prediction that they made, and verified their hypothesis. So the final step in this process is analysis of the experimental data or evidence, and they analysed that and went, yep, matches our prediction, that verifies our hypothesis, therefore we've answered our question. So it's this really neat kind of bookend process. You can look up the picture that Rosalind Franklin took online. This is photo 51. If you Google Rosalind Franklin photo 51, you'll see this beautiful cross-shape uh, picture. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the exact diffraction pattern that they predicted would be caused by DNA adopting that particular shape, which is really cool. And that's how, that's how science works. You basically take a question, apply a nice logical thought process to it and verify the experimental data that comes out the other side. I think the really interesting thing here is that while we've been talking about sciences like talking about the x-ray crystallography and looking for the structure of DNA, earlier we were saying that, you know, it's science is a verb, right? It's to do something. Yeah, for sure. So it doesn't just have to be those experiments that seem a bit out of reach for people who don't have a scientific background. Science can be as much as just in your everyday life, asking a question, making a guess, and then testing it out, seeing what the answer is. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's that's exactly the point that, that we really want people to, to come away with from, from this particular episode, is that it is a very accessible way of approaching problems. So, uh, for example, Mitchell is going to go home after this and make some porridge, let it go mouldy, <laughs> and then see if it turns into bread. Well, that's probably going to be one for, for a little bit later on. But yes. one of the important things is that Mitchell is not going to do this in isolation. Nope. He is going to set up multiple bowls of porridge. Yep. He is going to subject each bowl to a different set of conditions. Yeah, so one of them is not going to be mouldy. Um, <laughs> one of them, at least. <laughs> uh, and he is going to then analyse the results based on 
changing a particular variable. Like the mouldiness or what I make the porridge out of, whether it's a wheat porridge or an oatmeal-based porridge. Maybe you don't leave it out in the sun this time. (laughs) (laughs) So there's any number of of things and that, and that kind of brings us to this other really key part of science, which is the idea of variable and control. So whenever someone approaches a scientific question, whether it's in a lab or if it's in your own home, um, checking how quickly your porridge goes moldy, uh, there's got to be there's got to be something to compare it with. So if Mitchell just leaves a bowl of porridge to go moldy um, in the sun and it becomes bread, all that he has shown is that under the exact conditions that he's set that up to take place, porridge turns into bread. Mm. Now that's that's an interesting answer to one very very specific question. But the only way to make that scientifically valuable is to set that up uh, with things to compare it with. So. For example, Mitchell could leave a bowl of mm, wheat bix, and that could be his negative control. He knows that that's not going to turn into bread. And I, if could, it, I could put out a piece of bread. Could, well, the bread would be your positive control, uh, right? Because you know that so, bread is going to turn into bread. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that so you'll often hear scientists waffle on about having a positive control and a negative control. A positive control is something that's going to do the thing that you are hypothesizing that your thing will do. So the bread is going to stay bread, (laughs) and that's your positive control. If something goes wrong with your experiment, like if it burns down or something, and your positive control is no longer working, you know your experiment is invalid. Yeah. Yeah, because because the thing that you knew would be bread bread is no longer bread. It's a frog. If bread isn't bread, then you've really screwed up your experiment. (laughs) Yeah, you've done something wrong. Um, And then there's the idea of a negative control, and that is something that you know won't turn into bread. Like a brick. So you, know that there is, <laughs> you know that there's something that isn't going to take on the qualities that you're interested in. Or you've seen it verified multiple times previously. Perhaps you've read the literature and you know that bricks don't turn into bread. That's oh. been verified experimentally many times. So Mitchell would have his negative control, his brick. He would have his, his experimental piece of work, which would be his multi-porridge. And then he would have his positive control, which is bread. And after a period of 30 days, you would go back and analyse your results. I think that'd all be mouldy by that point. <laughs> Even the brick. Maybe the brick. Maybe the brick. Well, this is the kind of question that science could answer. Yeah. And, I, and I'd like to bring it back to sort of what Sian was talking about before, that idea that it's... I mean, we're sort of being a bit silly with the whole bread equals porridge equals bricks sort of example. But it is, it is a method of thinking that can actually be really helpful. So the other day... I got into my car and I plugged my iPod into the little cable thing in my car, which we all do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay. That's relatable. It's an audio jack. <laughs> or there is audio jack. Um, yes. So I plugged my plugged my iPod into the audio jack and it was crackly, and and I was immediately heartbroken because my iPod is like an antique. It's it's not something I could just go out and replace because Apple doesn't make them anymore. So the audio was crackly, and every time I moved the cable, it was you know, the sound was cutting in and out. So applying the scientific method, I went, all right, there's only, there's two things that could be wrong. My iPod could be broken or the cable could be broken. Or your car could be broken. Or my car could be broken. Oh God, I didn't think of that one. (laughs) Okay, there's three things that that could be wrong. My iPod could be broken, the cable could be broken or my car could be broken. So I went out and found another cable and tested it with my iPod because I thought that will eliminate the cable variable from my car. I'm replacing that with a new thing. If it's still crackly, I know it's either my car or my iPod. <laughs> and if it's and if it's fine, then I know that the problem was with the cable. Luckily, it was, but 
that was the scientific kind of approach that I took to solving that problem. And I, I didn't even think of it as a scientific way of thinking about it until I was thinking about the scientific method earlier today. Because it's just something that I think humans do really naturally. Like, you've probably seen lots of examples of people solving problems, complex problems, Sian, in, in your work. You're a science communicator. Yeah, so it's funny because, you know, as I said before, we can use the scientific method in our everyday life. It's not something that's just exclusively stuck to people in labs wearing lab clothes. You can wear it. You can wear it whenever. You can wear science whenever. <laughs> you can wear lab coats whenever. That's but also true. But you can true. also do the scientific method whenever. And so, yeah, at my work, I do a lot of science communication, and we often apply the scientific method without even realising it. Hey, look, we've 3D printed something, and the print has gone all wrong. So what was the fault? Was it that the nozzle is blocked? Was it because the plate was too cold? Did something else go wrong? By changing different variables in there, just one at a time, not all at the same time, you're never going to know what was the problem if you change them all at the same time, then yeah, it's going to be able to help you work out your problems. Yeah. There you go. Scientific, the scientific method is the solution to all of your life's problems. It, it quite possibly could be. We're going to go to a track really quickly. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about how we can apply this idea of experimentation, what it means to be a human doing science, because one of the unfortunate things is as rational as our approach to a problem can be. Uh, we might not necessarily be the most rational of creatures ourselves. So uh, this is a new M83 track. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. That was M83 with Go off their new album, uh, which both Sian and I have given very favourable reviews of. Uh, you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX 98.3 FM. And today we are talking experiments. We are discussing the scientific process, what scientists actually do, and why it's important that all of us think like scientists. So in the studio with me, we've got Mitchell, who we... Something to do with porridge. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. That's okay. Uh, but more importantly, we have Sian in the studio, and she is, by trade, a science communicator. Uh, she's incredibly qualified in this particular field, and so we're very, very lucky to have her in the studio. <laughs> no, I'm not... I'm, that was no, genuine. No, don't laugh it's at nice. Me. It's nice to be thought of as incredibly qualified. You are. You have a master's in science communication. You spent a year traveling around and teaching people about science and communicating very complicated ideas to a very wide variety of of different members of the public. What are kind of the tools that you use as a science communicator? A lot of what we do at my work is when we work with students in schools, getting them to really test things out and try them out for themselves. So there's there's actually a quote by Confucius. Mm, um, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pull out Confucius. And this um, is what we like here. Which is, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. Okay. That's right? really nice. Yeah. I quite like it. That explains a lot of my undergraduate career, it I think. It explains <laughs> a lot of my undergraduate career as well. It also explains because we did undergraduate together yeah, that, and, and I mean, why we may have forgotten similar things. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what we often do is we'll bring experiments or workshops or challenges to students, to school students, 
and we'll pose a challenge to them and get them to try it out themselves. We'll be happy to like give them encouragement and help them along, but we're not going to tell them the answer. We're not going to tell them how to do it. They have to try things out. They have to work on refining their ideas and making and trying to think through their process and how they're going to get to the solution that they want. So they're kind of setting up their own science scientific experiment there, right? We've given them a question. They have to guess what they think is going to happen and then they're going to try it out. And if it doesn't work, then they're going to change something. They're going to change one of the variables and they'll try it out again. And they keep trying until they finally get to a point where it might work or it might not. But that's okay as well because science isn't necessarily about always getting the right answer. It's not about having that final product in front of you and saying, yes, I did it. Science is about investigating and trying things out. And well, if you don't get to that final answer, sure, that kind of sucks. But hey, you now have data about things that don't work. And that's just as important. Yeah, that's actually really, that's a really interesting point. It's something that is is kind of an issue in the scientific community. And I suppose probably also to the self-esteem of students who are trying to solve problems in your workshops is that uh, there isn't this the same value put on negative results. So when we verify that this particular process doesn't do the thing we want it to do, uh, so I'm a chemist, so if we verify A plus B should make C, but it doesn't, no matter how many times we try, that's not that's not an exciting and publishable result in the current climate of science. Uh, you, you sort of have to stray from getting those negative results and being proud of them. You sort of sweep them under the rug. Whereas what we should be encouraging, and certainly from a very young age, and these workshops sounds like that sound like they're a really uh, fantastic way of of encouraging students down this line of thinking, is that those sorts of results are just as valid, even if they aren't as sort of fancy and exciting and publishable. They're still just as important. You've learned something from the process. Perhaps you've learned what to avoid trying the next time you tackle the problem. Yeah, totally. And I think that also stems a little bit from the school system. In schools, you are awarded rewarded for getting the answer correct mm. and not for getting it wrong. And so it kind of puts in place this idea where you have to get things right and maybe that's just by remembering things by the book, not yeah. trying them out. And that's that's a shame because that's not how it works in the real world, you don't just remember an answer and try it. No. <laughs> just, just, hey, I know that answer. Like, yes, yeah, sometimes, sure. But so much of real life is trial and error. So trial much and error and research yeah. and going back and Googling it, which is... No, that's a legitimate thing. I mean, there's so much human knowledge now that is instantly accessible. The, the school system, I think, is in the process of having to kind of rejig itself. Like, my little brother gets school assignments and they are very different for the, from the ones we used to get mm. uh, because back in our day, well, you know, sort of back in our day, you could sort of <laughs> set, you could set a question that you could potentially Google the answer to. Oh, I know I Googled the answers to many of my <laughs> chemistry labs in high school. Well, there we go. Uh, confessions here, <laughs> Cosiologic <laughs> Studios. But his assignments seem to be much more about uh, taking a concept and applying it in a new way or a way that isn't immediately searchable online and it's sort of forcing him and his classmates to start thinking about that process as you say so mm. when you're when you're sort of running these these workshops or, or taking these experiments to school students what what kind of things are you talking like what kind of are they are they physical challenges what sort of 
projects are you setting these students and how how are you expecting them to solve scientific problems? Yeah, so a lot of our, our workshops are not only just based on science, but science, engineering, design, like the whole of STEM, really STEAM, science, technology, engineering, maths, art being the A in STEAM, oh, just so you guys have got that I one. Like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's cool. And yeah, because like cause if you think about it, science isn't just like one thing. It's so everything is so interdisciplinary now that yeah. it's really important to be able to look at those extra parts that play into science. So we get students to build things with their hands and generally with everyday materials you can find around the house. So it's not intimidating. It's not like, here's a couple of really big pieces of wood and a drill, <laughs> partially because I don't want to give students a drill <laughs> and, and partially because it's it's more accessible. If you're like, yeah, I know, I know what a piece of paper is. I know what masking tape is. I can do this. And then, yeah, you've You've made something and you've tried it out and you've seen if it works. Okay, so like, what what's what's an example of like, say, I'm a, a student. Like, is it kind of the typical balloon cars or? Oh no, <laughs> the thing where you have to protect the egg from falling off the side of a building or whatever. Um, done things like that, but more like we have a very interesting thing where you build cars and you put an egg inside of it and the car is attached to a large weight and it slams into a brick wall and well okay hold on (laughs) okay it's not a brick wall it's a wooden wall but still uh it's yeah so so stuff like that um making making things to go in wind tunnels a whole bunch of really cool exciting different science and tech okay and so that and and the way you present this is you give them a problem to solve yeah so like Build something that can survive this crash. Build something that can float for a certain amount of time. And and so it's a very open-ended yeah. sort of challenge. So students can define their own success. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And and then they have multiple attempts. and Yeah. If, if something doesn't work, well, that's not the end of it. Go try something else. Refine yeah. it. Make it better. And that idea of changing one variable at a time kind of fits in with the with the scientific Look, process. you try to get them to change one variable at a time, but, you know. I, I personally think the best part of any sort of scientific thing that you might be doing is the experimental design where you actually come up with the idea for the experiment because typically when you actually need to go and do the experiment, it can get super tedious. So I'm just imagining those students trying to stop an egg getting crushed in a car crash and they go, okay, this one broke. All right, let's put two more bits of cotton wool in front of it. Okay, this one broke. All right, let's put three more bits of cotton wool in front of it. Yeah, that's see, that's not how it happens. It's <laughs> like, oh my goodness, let's put a whole bunch more foam in front of it and then turn it into a car from Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome um, and definitely much more fun. Uh, but I think that there's that, you know, science is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And there's this real sort of sense that if you're going to do something properly and scientifically, you do have to do those incremental changes of variables and put the cotton wool in slowly and slowly and slowly and see where you start seeing a different effect. But sometimes it's more fun to just turn things into Mad Max cars. (laughs) That's not to say that it isn't fun to change things incrementally, though. No, no, kids, it's fun to change things (laughs) incrementally. Change things incrementally. Science is good fun. Okay, that's the message we want you to take home from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, your science on a Sunday. This is a track by Heath Cullen. Uh, Enjoy. That was The Stranger by Heath Cullen. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX. My name's Eleanor. I'm in the studio with Mitchell and Sian. 
And we are talking about scientific experiments, the, the process of doing science. Uh, so less about the fancy images you get out of the Hubble telescope and more about how and why they set that telescope up in the first place. There's a hexagon on the top of Saturn! <laughs> Sorry, you can't just say that and then not follow it up. There's a, there's a, there's a hexagonal storm on the, like, I think it's the North Pole of Saturn. Are we talking like a perfect hexagon? It looks, it's a, you can Google it. There's a little image. It's like, a he, it's a hexagon. There's a hexagon on the, top, on the top of Saturn. Okay, well. Is it like always there or just there at the moment? I, well, it's the same as, I, I might be there all the time. The The red spot on Jupiter as far as we can tell, is not going to be there forever well, either. It's, it's gone at the moment, I'm pretty sure. The red spot on Saturn. On Jupiter. On Jupiter. Well, the red spot on Saturn's definitely gone. <laughs> that would be very, very distant. Wait, are you telling me that the red spot on Jupiter is no longer there? Oh, I don't know. I was looking at Jupiter through my mum's telescope the other day and I couldn't see it. But hey, oh! that... Also, side note, none of us are qualified in astronomy. No, that's also true. But my mum does have a telescope and... We're actually demonstrating a very, very important part of the scientific method, which is that just because I can't see the red spot on Jupiter through the sort of slightly fuzzy lens of a backyard telescope does not necessarily mean it's not there. It just means that I'm not able to observe it with that particular set of instruments. Yeah, you need to collect more data. I'd have to collect a lot more data, possibly with, with a more powerful telescope, in order to verify that the storm isn't there. Or alternatively, we could Google whether the storm is still there, because I'm sure that there are people who are watching it very closely. Uh, actually, let's do that now. And the wonders of pre-recording. Yeah, okay, so we've just, we've just Googled. The storm is still there. The red spot's still there. It's just I couldn't see it. So that's, that's some science there. And Saturn's hexagon is really cool it's for a throwaway line. It's mad. It's it's really impressive. So it's a cloud pattern around the north pole of Saturn, and it's basically like a perfect hexagon. The sides are all pretty much equivalent length. The corners 13, are... 13,800 kilometres each side. The corners are a little bit rounded, but it's still very clear. And it's and it's sort of rotating, so it's a vortex. It's a big storm. So it is like the, the eye on Jupiter, the big red storm. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, um, I have no idea why it's there. I don't remember why you even mentioned it. Um, neither oh, do I. Something about telescopes. Uh, yes, well, what that what that all ties back to is that we're talking about the scientific process and experimenting. Um, and a bit earlier we were talking about this idea that during high school and undergrad, Sian and I Googled a lot of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have no idea how we got this far. <laughs> we Google a lot of things, and one of the things that uh, we have to Google quite a bit as chemists is the various properties of different particles. So how much does this particular element weigh per mole of it? How What's the charge on this particular fundamental particle? You know, there's a lot of numbers with absurdly long series of decimal points or zeros after them that kind of are important to what we do as chemists, but aren't necessarily stored away in our brains particularly well. But that kind of got me thinking about, you know, what we were talking about before is the idea of experiments being used as a tool for teaching because there's one thing I remember from school very, very vividly, and I'm not sure if, if Sian remembered it quite as well, but it's something that I do think about very often and, and she's moved on to bigger and better things, whereas I spent a lot of time thinking about electrons I still spend a lot of time thinking about electrons. Oh, I good. just don't do it as a job anymore. <laughs> See, I'm just an electron enthusiast now. <laughs> no, but but one of the one of the values that we kind of have to know a little bit about is the charge on an electron. So, uh, what's the actual uh, quantified amount of electrical charge that exists on one of these fundamental particles? 
I don't know what that number is off the top of my head. I do have it written down and I'll tell you what it is in a bit. But the thing I do remember very vividly is being told about how they figured it out, how they initially determined what the charge on the electron was. You're right, I don't remember this. It <laughs> may have been one of the classes that I needed more coffee well, for. Well, I will jog your memory because I didn't, I didn't remember it you know, in its entirety, but I sort of remembered the idea of it. And, and it is a really, really cool experiment. So it's this guy called Milliken, Milliken uh, and his offside of Fletcher. And back in 1909-ish, so you know, early 20th century, they devised an experiment in order to figure out what the electrical charge associated with this new fancy particle was. So people kind of knew that electrons were things, but they hadn't sort of quantified any of the properties of electrons yet. That was kind of a thing that needed to be done. It was a question that needed to be answered. And so they set up this really, really elegant experiment where they had a glass case, and then inside the glass case there were two electrodes, so like a sandwich of electrodes, uh, one at the top, one at the bottom, and they had a little nozzle that stuck into the glass case between the electrodes. I'm doing a lot of hand waving here, more just for the benefit of the people. Just in imagine the a sandwich; it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't be this hungry thinking about an electrode sandwich. <laughs> yeah, no, that's kind of worrying, but it is it is close to food time. But anyway, they had this setup with an electrical field moving between the two electrodes, and that created a force that would pull things up basically the way they set up the voltage across these electrodes, which would directly counteract gravity pulling something down. Then they got a little perfume bottle full of oil and they sprayed it in between these electrodes and they could look down microscopes into the gap between these electrodes, play around with the strength of the electric field uh, to perfectly balance the electric force going upwards with the gravitational force going downwards. So they could basically make these tiny droplets of oil hover between two electrodes because the droplets of oil had a slight charge on them, a slight negative charge. So they basically did this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Maybe. I don't know. Science. (laughs) Science. This is the repetition section. So you take this really, really amazing thing and you do it until it's boring. Yes, exactly. Hey, that's like the tagline for all of science. (laughs) Do this thing that's really exciting until it no longer excites you. And then it's verified. Um, <laughs> but they basically looked at the the size of these droplets, how much electric field strength they needed to counteract the mass of the droplet and the force of gravity pulling it down, and plotted all of these out over you know a series of, of quite long experiments where they were doing this over and over. And they noticed that there was a very small, uh, I guess, quanta, so a small amount of charge by which each of these things would differ. So there was the smallest possible difference between, say, oil droplet A and oil droplet B, and the difference between the charges on both of those droplets was always going to be like a multiple of this tiny amount that they kept seeing pop up again and again. So they assumed that this tiny amount that they kept seeing, you know, separating these drops was the charge of an individual electron which is one of these fundamental particles that we can't break down any further. So after doing this many, many times, they collated and analysed all this data and determined that the smallest difference in charge that they kept observing was 1.5924 times 10 to the negative 19 coulombs, 
which is the units of electrical charge. And they went, yep, okay, experimental error was all good, that was fine, and even to this day, our value of the charge on the electron is not actually that much different. So Millikan did some uh, cosmetic surgery on his results, which is another important thing we have to think about when we're talking about the scientific process, is that he actually failed to report all of his data. He cut and paste and kind of cherry-picked his best results and presented those and left out the results that didn't 100% agree with what he was seeing, which is slightly problematic because obviously if I flip a coin 100 times and write down all the results and then just circle all the times it was heads and go, those are my results, then it looks like I have a coin that only gives me heads, right? So, you know, cherry picking of data is is one of these scary, (laughs) unpleasant things that perhaps goes on when scientists are under that pressure to present particularly stellar results. But I have to read you this Richard Feynman quote because I think it just takes us to an, to an even more absurd level and really does highlight what happens when humans do science uh, and introducing the ultimate variable, which is human brains, because he basically observed that uh, there was a strange phenomenon that took place over the next 100 years or so when people were going back to find other methods of calculating the charge on the electron. We have learned a lot from experience about how to handle some of the ways we fool ourselves. One example. Millikan measured the charge on an electron by an experiment with falling oil drops and got an answer which we now know not to be quite right. It's a little off because he had the incorrect value for the viscosity of air. It's interesting to look at the history of measurements of the charge of an electron after Millikan. If you plot them as a function of time, you find each one is a little bit bigger than Millikan's, and the next one's a little bit bigger than that, and the next one's a little bit bigger than that, until they all finally settle down to a number which is higher. Why didn't they discover the new number was higher right away? It's a thing that scientists are ashamed of, this history, because it's apparent that people did things like this. When they got a number that was too high above Millikan's, they thought something must be wrong and they would look for and find a reason why something might be wrong. When they got a number close to Millikan's value, they didn't look so hard, and so they eliminated the numbers that were too far off and did other things like that. Basically, through the process of looking at their results and going, "Uh, this one's like a little bit too far off from what Millikan said, maybe it's not right, I won't use it in my paper, I'll go back to his value, we basically cut out all the correct or the closer to correct values, whereas if they got a number that was, we now know, slightly too low and matched his, they were like, yep, that must be right, I'll keep that one. So it's like the ultimate variable is human interpretation. It's a great big fat bias. It is, yeah. And I just thought it was a really sort of elegant way of, of expressing that, that we actually had the fundamental properties of a fundamental particle incorrect for that many years because how long was it before we got it right well as of 2014 the value is 1.6017665 times 10 to the negative 19 so 1.602 as opposed to 1.592 so you know that's a huge amount like is is it well if you're doing very precise experiments it is but okay if you just sort of 
keeping in mind that electrons are really, really small. They are very, very small. Really, really small. They're quite little. Yeah, okay, fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so one of the ultimate variables and one of the things that we really can't control but try very hard to control as scientists is the fact that we are people trying to do this. And people sometimes think silly things and get emotional about things, but we try and fight through and, and keep our evidence as empirical and clean as possible without the influence of of fudging data a little bit because you think it looks nicer that way. Mitchell, you were saying something about Mount Everest, which kind of reflects this too. Oh, so the first person to ever try and measure Mount Everest was, well, Everest. Um, <laughs> so the Welsh guy... Um, George Everest. George Everest. Mm. Sir George Everest. Um, he got a team of geographers together to do to all work on measuring their own little triangular plots of Mount Everest, and they put all that data together, and it came out to twenty nine thousand kilometers feet. 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 Wow, kilometers. That that would be ridiculous. <laughs> um, twenty nine thousand feet. Um, exactly. And they were like, "Oh my god." nobody's ever going to believe that it's exactly 29,000 feet. So they added two feet to the top of Mount Everest <laughs> to make it look nicer. <laughs> to make it look more scientific. Yeah. To make it look less nice. To make it look to make it look less like it was an estimate. <laughs> if one person is standing on top of Mount Everest, does it automatically add two feet? Oh, that's... Well, I think we need to go to a song. Go for it, There is absolutely no way we can top that. Uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic with me, Eleanor Sian, who is just the master of jokes and humour. Uh, I used up more, all mine last time. Mitchell used up all his last time, but but he's still trying his hardest. Uh, <laughs> this is a Frightened Rabbit track. Uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. That was Get Out by Frightened Rabbit. Uh, once again, off a new album. came out just recently, so if you like that, Go and find more of it. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX, your science on a Sunday with me, Eleanor. We've got Mitchell in the studio. Hello. And we're joined uh, by Sian, who is our SciComm expert, which we really need on this show sometimes. (laughs) We've been talking about experimenting, the scientific process, what it actually means to do science and to be a scientist. Uh, We were just talking before about the human factor in experiments uh, Millikan did a, a fantastic experiment in 1909 to figure out the charge of an individual electron, one of our fundamental particles that make up all of the things that we see and taste and feel. And he sort of fudged his data a little bit. Uh, all that really resulted in is his numbers looked a little bit nicer uh, for publication than perhaps they deserved to look. But it is one of those things where the human influence in science is something that we need to be aware of because... Scientists are people who do science, uh, which seems like an obvious thing to say, <laughs> but it's it's actually really interesting and quite relevant because this study has just been published by a guy called Bastian Ruchens and Stephen Hine. So it was published in PLOS One, which is uh, one of the open access journals, I think. So you can head there and, and have a read of it if you're interested. And it was basically a study where they got 2,000 participants online and they asked them uh, various sets of questions to determine what these participants thought about scientists. And the results were kind of interesting because, and I, I was actually quite surprised by this, because people overwhelmingly said that scientists seemed very trustworthy, which I think is good because we try to be, but I, it just seemed a bit at odds with what perhaps public perception is of 
people who do the science um, that, that perhaps they have their own interests and things, which isn't which isn't necessarily the case. But it was really interesting to see that they were ranked very highly as being trustworthy and scrupulous, uh, which I guess are both words that you could use to describe um, someone doing important science. Scrupulous is such a great word. It really is. It's one we need to use more often. I'm going to put that on my CV uh, as a scientist. That I, I am scrupulous. scrupulous. <laughs> um, but then, so so that was, they were, they were described as being more scrupulous than a regular person. <laughs> Scientists aren't regular. We really aren't. And... But the but the on the flip side of that, they were also uh, ranked as being robot-like and goal-oriented, which made me laugh a lot today as I watched my colleagues fall upon a dozen donuts that my boss bought. <laughs> These are scientists, and their only goal is trying to get as many donuts as possible today. <laughs> so it, it's just a really interesting thing that the public perceives scientists as being so. Um, you know, careful and cautious and scrupulous and robot-like. Sian, is that kind of the the standard vision of the... Like, is that the public perception of scientists kind of equivalent in Australia as it is in the US with this study? It is to a point, and it's really interesting because sometimes we go into schools and we ask the students, well, what when you think of a scientist, what do you think of? Do you, do you think I'm a scientist? Now, I'm a mid-20s female and a lot of primary school kids, they're like, no, no, you're not a scientist. And they're like, well, what, what should a scientist look like? And they're like, well, it should be a man in a lab coat who looks a little crazy and he's holding, he's holding a glass with coloured fluids in it. And you're like, well, that's not really what we want to think of when we think of scientists now, is it? We want, we want people to realise that scientists are regular human beings and Sometimes they screw up, but yeah, generally they are trying to do the best science they can. So it's interesting, firstly, to kind of see those opinions from kids, but also, as as you said before, Eleanor, that idea that the scientists are robotic because you get a lot of people who are like, oh, you scientists, start talking about your feelings rather than the the data points and all of that stuff. And then as soon as scientists start coming out and talking about their feelings about things, especially about very polarising things like climate change oh, yeah. and their feelings about how it's going to affect the world, you get a lot of people who are like, get back to your science box, scientists. Don't you <laughs> dare come out and tell us about your feelings. That's not what your job is. We don't care about your feelings. Go do more science. Uh, yeah, it is, it is sort of a really awkward dichotomy there where... You know the very, the very basis of the scientific method, as we were kind of talking about earlier in the show, is this very systematic. You know, it is it is quite robotic. You change one variable and you see what effect that has. You propose a hypothesis and you come up with a very rational and observable method of checking it. And you go through this whole process. The process itself is robotic, but the people who are doing it are just people. They're you know your standard humans they're just like you and me they are which is such it's a terrible thing to say but it is really true and and i guess that's that's something that psychom really seeks to expand upon Sian. so a lot of what you would be doing is trying to break down that that assumption that scientists are always going to be men they're always going to be wearing white lab coats they're always going to be carrying a strange fuming beaker of something uh how do you how do you go about trying to convince whether it's children or even adults, that that isn't the case anymore. 
Well, there's there's a lot of ways to do that. And I suppose, as I said before, being a, a young female is a good place to start being able to go into these schools and being like, well, look, I kind of am around the same age as you guys and I'm not an old white man in a lab coat. You can do science. I can do science. And And I suppose that's one of the first ways to start breaking down this stereotype by actively showing that it doesn't exist and mm. apart from that just trying not to perpetuate it yeah I, I think one of the ways we can sort of work towards breaking down these stereotypes even just in the media recently there's there's so many great examples in in fiction and kids movies and uh big and hero six big hero six has so good it has some incredible role models in that it really does and so all of the scientists in it, or almost all of them, so a lot of the main characters are scientists or engineers and they're all young mm. and they come from a lot of different backgrounds and about half of them are females, some of them are engineers, some of them are chemists and it's a really positive science movie, which is really cool, especially for a kid's movie. Yeah, and it made me cry. It's such a nice film. Big Hero 6. Uh, yeah. And... and uh, Princess Bubblegum Princess from Adventure Time. From Adventure Time. If you haven't seen any Adventure Time, uh, go watch some and prepare to be discomforted. Uh, <laughs> it's it's yes. kind of a little bit scary, but, but in a really wonderful, childish way. And Princess Bubblegum is this amazing role model. She's a scientist and a princess, and she's made of bubblegum. But she, <laughs> I but mean, she what more could you ever want? Exactly, and she doesn't let any of those things hold her back from, from doing her science and approaching things in that very rational robotic application of the process but whilst being a very dynamic and interesting character herself yeah so to tie in with all this we've been talking about today uh the the scientific process and the the methods that we use to solve scientific questions and answer these questions and solve these problems uh our very own rod taylor has got a column in the canberra times today uh on that very topic what is science and uh, he's written a fantastic, very quick, easy to read piece that really gets to the heart of some of the disconnects between what scientists actually do and what the public thinks we do, and and it's it's a really really nice read. So if you're if you're near a paper, have a skim um, and look for the Ask Fuzzy column that our Rod has written. Just remains to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been good fun in the studio. We really do enjoy doing pre-records. What is science? And you can too. <laughs> so feel free to download the podcast. Go to Fuzzy Logic, uh, Google Fuzzy Logic Podbean. That's where our podcasts go up. Uh, and we've got a Twitter account. So uh, we're at, at Fuzzy Logic Sci, S-C-I. Uh, get on the Twitter and tell us what you think. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX. Have a fantastic Sunday and we will see you next time. Bye.